how do you find that sort of safe place where you can have a, a trusted advisor who actually is embedded within the security industry, within vendors, that can actually give you the lowdown on the latest trends, technologies, changes, who's adopting what technologies and why they're adopting it. And it's really difficult to try and find that in the existing market. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Damien Manuel from Deakin University, Australia, about the security manager's responsibility to keep an eye on the horizon for new security technologies and adapting cutting-edge solutions safely without simply chasing the newest thing on the market. CISOs are constantly pressed to buy bigger and better cybersecurity tech. But with the pantheon of security startups expanding so quickly, how can security leaders cut through the bullshit and find the trusted advisor to help them shape an effective security program? And what does that mean for the security vendor? Damien, thank you for making time for us today. Uh, if you would, please introduce yourself. I'm Damien Manuel, the director for Deakin University's Cybersecurity Research and Innovation Centre, and I'm also the chair of the Australian Information Security Association. So for those that um, are regular listeners, you are the first Australian guest. You're not tied just to Australia. Uh, you're, you're all over the world. Many uh, countries, many continents. What else are you involved in? I know you, you gave a brief intro. Uh, what else do you do, Damien? Uh, I've been working with CompTIA uh, for probably about 18 years now as a subject matter expert. Uh, I'm also on their governance committee as well, on the governance board. Um, so I help to develop the Security Plus, the advanced uh, security certification that they have, as well as um, server plus and some of the other legacy ones that uh, they no longer sort of carry anymore. Back in the early days of uh, when the internet was first becoming popular. So you also are involved, I don't know if this is a permanent thing, but I also got to spend time with you at uh, RSA. Yes, I'm involved in the uh, RSA conference from a Singapore perspective. I've been chairing the Executive Security Action Forum group there for the last two years. I'm still helping uh, to build a program with uh, the Singaporean RSA conference for uh, this coming year, which will be interesting under the uh, COVID-19 sort of conditions. Uh, and then sort of outside of that, I'm also on a number of boards. I'm on a board for the Victorian Ombudsman. I'm on another board for a Oceanic Cybersecurity Research Group as well. Back to RSA, are you guys thinking that that's going to be potentially virtual? Yeah, so RSA Singapore will definitely be virtual. And the Executive Security Action Forum Group, which was basically a whole bunch of chief information security officers and uh, executives coming together to have a sort of a one-day private session that would occur before the actual conference, that's now going to be virtual as well and broken across a number of days because. Now that everybody's connecting in virtually, uh, it's difficult to get people to be on a call, I guess, for an extended period of time for, you know, six, seven hours 
it's more convenient to break it into smaller chunks so they can deal with their day-to-day jobs as well. I can say for those listening, uh, if there's interest in it, I don't know how you're going to open it up because it was kind of closed doors, but the event that I was able to attend and participate in was fantastic. Top-notch speakers and great networking. So for those, if if you're uh, curious or wanting to be involved, I highly recommend that for sure. So you stay busy. I stay busy. Yep. So on the show, I mean, we, we had a chat, I guess it was about a week ago. I explored a little bit of what what are some of the things that you think we can improve upon? And one of the things that you talked about as an industry is sort of the sales process and what that's like from a relationship process. Do me a favor and, and unpack that. What irritates you about that? Where can we improve? And uh, how, do, how do you treat that as a security leader? So I guess as a security leader, the challenge is how do you find out what's coming over the horizon? How do you find out changes or trends in technologies or new kinds of solutions? And how can you do that in a safe environment? Uh, And that's quite difficult because what you tend to find is there's all these new startups that are are popping up. You've got these large established organizations and everybody's looking to build a sales pipeline and pitch a product or a solution. How do you find that sort of safe place where you can have a a trusted advisor who actually is embedded within the security industry, within vendors, that can actually give you the lowdown on the latest trends, technologies, changes, who's adopting what technologies and why they're adopting it. And it's really difficult to try and find that in the existing market. But wouldn't someone, Damien, tell you that that's why we have big consulting groups and and to a lesser extent why we have you know value ad- added resellers couldn't that be the the pushback on that where where do they fall into this or where are they falling short so consultants uh, you know it's that that old adage of um, you know ask a consultant the time and they'll say can you give me a watch and they'll tell you the time and then give you back and then keep the watch yeah so i think it's it's one of those things where you know, a lot of organizations will bring the consultants in when they kind of already know what they want to do and they're looking for that rubber stamp of that brand name to, to make a, a decision or a large cultural change or a large project rather than sort of using their own people. And I, I guess the challenge is you're looking for somebody who's also independent but also understands the roadmap of organizations and where they're going. So it could be somebody who's either, you know, working in the industry across a number of different sort of vendors, or it could be you're building a relationship with specific vendors who have got the confidence and relationship to tell you when a product they have is not suitable for you and refer you to somebody else. And that's really kind of the value add because then you're building a long-term trusted relationship. You know, people are going to be very eager to speak to someone uh, like yourself, who has connections, who is involved in many different things, uh, and plus they just want to—they've got to meet their meet their quota, or they've got to build that pipeline. So, what advice do you have if, let's say, that either uh, maybe there's someone in sales who's listening, or maybe there's a new CISO who has the same issue, right? So, what what recommendation do you have first for the maybe the the new salesperson in this in this world? So I think for the new salesperson, it's really around 
building a genuine, real relationship and having the confidence and the bravery to go back to the business and actually highlight that you're actually building a long-term relationship. And this is not just a transactional uh, operation where you're not just you know, cozying up to somebody to try and sell them a particular product to meet your uh, sales quarter. It's about building that long-term sustainability because if you can build that long-term relationship, that chief information security officer or that executive will then take you under their wing through that confidence and introduce you to other people in the industry as well. So you actually start to increase your pie in terms of the influence you'll have over the market space. And I think, you know, for the chief information security officers, a lot of them shy away from salespeople and a lot of them sort of, you know, are quite rude and obnoxious to salespeople and don't want to talk to them. And really, at the end of the day, they shouldn't really be treating people in that manner because at some point they're going to need them to either have a conversation around pricing or to try and find out, you know, something that's going on in the market or to use them to get to somebody else within the organization. So it's this kind of balance between how does a CISO go about the day job without getting pestered by 30 or 40 different salespeople on any given day? And how does that salesperson get cut through with that executive to really take them through, you know, here's the products, here's the services that we're offering. I'm standing by to help when you're ready and I want to understand and learn about your business. Yeah. So let's say I'm, I'm a new sales guy. And I'm trying to get a meeting with you and you don't know me at all and you've never heard of my product, but I'm trying to get your attention. What increases my odds in that process generally? So I think there's a couple of different ways that you could do it. You could either do it through a referral. So there might be somebody that you know who I trust already within a certain sort of network who could be a recommender and say, look, you know, hey, I, I you know, suggest you have a chat with this individual. Well, that's one avenue that requires, though, an understanding of what circles I move within and who I'm talking with. Uh, so it's a little bit of sort of deep research that's required by the salesperson. The other probably easier scenario is you know, I'll go to different conferences. So, you know, I, I like going to the RSA conference. I'll go to the US one, the Singapore one, Black Hat, DEFCON, things like that, or even sort of industry trade events. That's an opportunity to catch up with me or bump into me and to strike up a conversation. I'm interested in people, what their passions are, their backgrounds, what they hope to aspire to be or become. and that's the bit that you'd want to use to start that conversation. When you get those cold calls of, hey, you know, how's your day being? And you know you're going to go straight to that sales pitch of somebody saying, you know, uh, how's, your, how's your business doing? Are you looking for uh, new people, products or services? That's the thing that kind of uh, turns you off. It's, it's more somebody taking the time to understand who I am, what buttons to push when they're talking with me, to have a genuine sort of connection, and I really want to genuinely know about them. What is it that they want to do? What is it that they're hoping to do? Where do they want to be in five, 10 years? Because maybe I can help them when they move on to something different, because maybe they might become part of my team. So there are those avenues or, or sort of areas that people really sort of need to think about. It's you know, having that genuine interest in an individual. 
Certainly. Sincere appreciation for the individual and, and not just trying to make it transactional. Have you ever had anybody that's that clear with you to say, hey, you know what? My product probably isn't for you, Damien, uh, but I want to know you. Like, I want to have a chat. Would you give me 15 minutes? Have you encountered that ever? Very, very rare. So I, I, I have encountered that a couple times, and those conversations go really well. One, I'll remember that individual. I'll call up that individual just to stay connected to find out how they're tracking and going. And at some point, I might have a need for uh, the product or service that they have as an organization, or they might move to another company. And suddenly, you know, that, that company's got something that I'm keen uh, to look at acquiring or using or leveraging. And so you know, I'll deliberately call that individual because that's now my entry point into that organization. You said something earlier that I have been guilty of in my past, and it's being rude to salespeople. Not so much salespeople that I haven't really met yet, kind of inbound lead generation, but more if I had an ongoing relationship with them, with their product, and I had a negative result, a repeated negative result. Uh, I've mellowed out quite, quite a bit, but I used to be uh, pretty hot-tempered. And looking back on that, even if I was technically correct, uh, I was uh, emotionally or as a human wrong. Talk a bit about why are CISOs rude in general? I think this is an important topic, rude to salespeople. Like what causes that behavior and what should they do instead? I think there are two different aspects. So you've got two different personas. You've got the the CISO who has been quite aggressive in nature traditionally that's made it up to the top of the level uh, of their game. And they've had to be aggressive to get to the top of their game in that particular environment. And so unfortunately, those individuals have a bit of an attitude of, I know everything, I'm better than everybody. And I've come across CISOs for very, very large organizations who are in meetings with CISO of smaller organizations and don't want to be in that meeting because they don't even recognize their peers because they're not at the same sort of organization size, uh, even though they're both dealing with the same challenges and problems. So that's kind of really disappointing because you, you'll often hear those ones say, look, you know, I, I don't want to come to these meetings because I'm not getting any, anything out of it. There's nothing in it for me. And I think you're not going to change those individuals. But then you've got other CISOs who, you know, haven't been sort of the alpha male type of attitude or sort of that hostility and sort of fighting at the sort of top ranks in order to get where they are. They've gotten there because of they've been calm in nature, steady-minded, they had good connections and they were able to deliver on a commitment. Those ones can blow up in situations because at the end of the day, the CISO role is really high pressure, high demand. Um, there's a sh you know, short turnaround in terms of the life period of somebody being a CISO for any given organization can vary between 12 to 18 months, depending on the culture of that organization. Because of all those sort of demands, and then you've got resource constraints around what you can do from a budget perspective, a people personnel perspective, Sometimes 
getting cold calls out of the blue consume valuable time that you could be allocating to other things because you know often as a scientist you can very easily become swamped and fall behind sure. in terms of all the things that you need to achieve the things that you've promised the business or, or other commitments that you've made as well it's sometimes just being caught up in that high pressure moment wrong time wrong person the salesperson might have had a wrong kind of attitude at the other end of the phone or or in in that meeting so it is very easy for people to kind of, I guess, lose it a little bit. But at the end of the day, the, you know, you've got to remember that everybody's human. Everybody puts on their pants exactly the same as everybody else. And it's not a ego game of I'm better than everybody else. You've got the ability to learn from all those that are around you and enrich your experience and your process of, of thinking things through as well. You covered something that I think is important that I hadn't thought about. Maybe I've been guilty of it. And the thing that came to mind, you know, when you, you talked about a tearing within InfoSec and with the executive, and you mentioned it in your answer that you just gave, sort of this caste system amongst CISOs. And I had never thought about that. And I have said in the past that there are certainly call them Hollywood CISOs, which maybe is a subgroup of the upper tier of this, meaning they're involved, they're a part of, at least here in the States, they're at every conference, they're getting every award, and I even wonder how they're getting their work done at home. How detrimental is that? And what's your advice? You said you couldn't change the people that are sort of the bad ones at the top, but there's probably some good ones at the top. Like, What's your message there, and, and, and what's your advice to those that maybe aren't at the quote-unquote top? So the good ones at the top, what you'll find will start to get swamped because they'll try to help other people to reach the same level that they're at. You know, they'll take sort of junior CISOs under their wing to help move them in the right direction and help to sort of build, you know, the, their careers as well. What you'll tend to find, though, is those individuals will be sort of rare gems that really do get sort of torn apart by other people trying to get their time. And they're often willing to give that time to their own detriment. Uh, you know, the, the Hollywood sort of CISOs uh, tend to have teams of people that are often sort of helping to apply for awards, um, you know, writing abstracts and things that are submitted for award categories and things like that. You know, I've seen CIOs in that same sort of category that are winning, you know, CIO of the Year Award every year. And it's really not through any means of the work that they're doing. It's just that they have a really good team that can craft a really good application uh, to put them forward. The real leaders in the industry are the ones who want to learn from others, but also want to give back. And it's that paying it forward in terms of education, experience, and even introductions and opening doors for people that you know, couldn't normally get to certain places. And I think that's sort of really what makes a, a good CISO, a, particularly a long-standing one with a, a good reputation within the industry. I really love that that answer, learning, giving back, and making introductions, which I think that's the foundation of, of any mature culture, in this case, security culture, CISO culture. I want to go back to those three things, but before before we do... It sounds like that there's some organizations, and I used 
you know, Hollywood CISO. I don't know if there's a an analog or a parallel in Australia. Maybe Hollywood still applies. It sounds like some organizations have really good marketing and advertising, so to speak, that that's part of the machine. I've never been a part of that. I'm amazed that it happens. And frankly, maybe even a little bit jealous when I was, before I knew all of this was going on, you know, you see these same folks sort of getting all this attention. Is that part of what's wrong? I mean, what's the negative of that? Like what's the, these sort of fake, they're not fake awards, but they're sort of synthesized. Yes. Yeah. And and I think what happens is it it creates a bit of a a boys club culture uh, where you've got, you know, the same individuals that are always winning the awards, um, always being picked to be on advisory groups that are either advising government or, you know, some industry body. Um, so then you, you get this kind of myopic view of the world. And the danger with that is rather than having a diverse field of people with different backgrounds, different cultures, different experiences, you end up in a place where these individuals are kind of pushing the industry in one direction, but it's not the direction that everybody wants to go. And so you're going to leave people behind. And I think that becomes the dangerous kind of tipping point where you start to fragment the industry and we're not a cohesive group of protectors of different organizations and and countries. Um, So the, the danger there is you'll start to create factions within the industry. I have absolutely seen that. I think someone says, you know, never meet your hero. Uh, And I've had that happen a couple of times in my career where you have this view of someone and you begin to maybe unfairly build an idea of who they are. Uh, And in this case, you know, leading security people and leaders in in our world. And you meet them and you think because they're on all these boards and they're mentioned that, you know, wow, this person just must be fantastic. And maybe they are, but you also then think, I bet they're really friendly and willing to help because if they're not friendly and willing to help and not a good leader, not willing, as you said, to learn, give back and do introductions, you know, they wouldn't be giving these awards to these people. And you meet them or you're around them and boy, are you wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And I think you know, I, I really like the way you, you've outlined the issues, right? You talk about this boys club and leaving people behind. That's a very real issue because you end up getting the same type and form of people, the same sort of shape and, and color and attitude and all these things that, that begins to build largely because either uh, they have a huge security budget, they've got a big platform. Right, they've got lots of people who listen to them for some reason, and it seems like another piece which you've added is they have a sort of a marketing department. Yep, um, which sounds very treacherous. I mean, that's that's a that's a real issue. And you mentioned faction. What's an example without calling anyone out? Like, what's a faction within the security community? One thing that's kind of playing out in Australia is you've got the chief information security officer. And that role is now morphing into the chief security officer. And so you've got this group that believes, you know, it's all about the data, it's all about the tech. And then you've got another group that says, no, it's it's not just about data, it's a bigger issue around culture, the organization, 
And those individuals encompass areas like fraud, physical security, as well as digital security. So you've got this kind of change where, you know, some people are saying, look, it's a bigger, broader problem and that security should be there to really enable the business and be a value add rather than a cost center. Uh, and then others that are just kind of protecting their, their patch and saying, no, everything runs through me as an organization. To give you an example, you know, one uh, chief security officer that I know, he's, you know, he's using his security team to provide information back to HR not around insider threat in terms of people that need to be punished, but around people that may be at a mental breaking point and need help and intervention before they do something silly or they make a mistake. Um, so he's using his security team as a positive force to improve people and improve the culture and provide a value back, as opposed to your kind of traditional security thing, which would, would have been, you know, let's go hunt down that individual that did something wrong. Interesting. With that split, do you think that's something that's detrimental? I know there's a lens on it. I know there's also kind of an archetype of individual that you may find in one camp and not in the other. But is that a branding issue or is it a mindset issue? Is it could could you be one or the other or both? I mean, what's your position on that? I think it's probably a mindset issue and a skills issue. Uh, so if you look at the trend of security needing to morph into a business enabler, particularly during crisis management times, um, you know, security is best place to help resolve crisis, work across crises, which are not specifically just data theft, like it could be, you know, pandemic crisis as well as um, natural disaster, as well as a, a data breach. And I think a lot of your traditional sort of CISOs haven't had that sort of experience or have really relied on a tech background, whereas some other ones that are not necessarily technical, but have, you know, had some law enforcement experience or um, some military experience that kind of brings a different leadership lens to it. I just had a guest last week, uh, Stephen Katz, who was the first CISO, the first person that's been documented to have that title. And it was years and years ago with um, Morgan Trust. And he thinks there's going to be a split that the CSO, CISO thing is, is, is going to sort of become one and then split. Now, I've not dug into this other than the time I spent with him on the show, which was phenomenal. But he says there's going to be two things, and I'd like to know uh, your take. He thinks there's going to be a title known as the CIRO, Chief Information Risk Officer, and the CIRTO, Chief Information Risk Technology Officer. So the first one is the what and the why, reporting probably into the Chief Risk Officer Legal, uh, the next is the how, so the technology guy is the how, and coming up with the best how. Then the RO will sort of audit the TO. Do you think that makes sense? And not to put you at odds with Mr. Katz, but I mean, do you think that that is maybe a longer play on kind of the topic that you've introduced? Uh, I, th I think that could be because I am seeing some organizations here that have a 
chief security officer and reporting to the chief security officer, they've got a CISO. And then the CISO role is slightly different to the traditional CISO. Uh, And then under the CSO, you've also then got other teams reporting to them who may have divisional security officers, depending on how large the organization is. So it does seem to be a distributed model is being developed because I think one single individual can't do everything anymore. And so is now becoming more and more reliant on better teams around them to help deliver the who, the what, the how, and the capability. No question. I was just thinking that as part of that conversation and now ours, where the RO is going to be the one that really talks to the execs and is the risk advisor, because that's a, that's skill craft that, yes. that, that you're not probably not born with uh, and takes some time to develop where the technology officer, the CIRTO, if, if that name becomes something that sticks, is more of a tech-leaning, you know, reporting in or, or encompassing CIO, CTO kind of world. Yep. I hope that we have this type of evolution. I hope we can look back and say, hey, look at, look at where we, from where we came. Look at, look at the issues we were having because uh, we're very new. Yes. And with newness comes some violent behavior uh, and immaturity. Related to immaturity, you talked about misaligned incentives, which hints a little bit back to what we spoke of earlier, but misaligned incentives on the vendor side. And often I think that, that CISOs put a lot of political capital into making a technology decision The technology decisions take time to implement. You talked about this incentive issue on the vendor side, though. I'd like for you, if you would, to explore that. What's that issue? What's what's misaligned? So there's a couple sort of issues, I I guess, on on the vendor side. If I look at it from a sales uh, individual, sort of the sales arm of a vendor perspective, the misalignment there is the belief that you can always get continuous growth year on year out and at an exponential rate. So the challenge that you'll often find is a, a sales individual will be given a particular target. They might be really good, have a great network of people and actually reach that sales target and exceed it. So then the next year, they'll be given an even bigger sales target to reach. And then it gets to a point by about year three where the salesperson cannot realistically reach the sales target and then ejects themselves or, or are ejected from that organization and then moves to the next vendor and then repeats that cycle all over again. And that's why you tend to see a lot of salespeople sort of chop and change through different vendors in a short period of time. The really good vendors understand that there are going to be ebbs and flows in the market. And so that salespeople still need to be incentivized, but they also still need to make a living. And they need to make an honest living that reflects the brand and integrity of the organization. So, you know, they're not salespeople that will sell their shirt off, you know, the back of their grandmother or anything like that. They'll actually have honest conversations meet the targets where they realistically can, but won't sell somebody a product just to meet a target. Sure. Because the value of that relationship is higher than that sort of monetary value. Those vendors are the ones that will succeed in the long term and will actually bring larger deals 
from various organizations uh, over a longer period of time. The other challenge that vendors have is it's a race against other vendors. Hmm. So you've got a product team that have a finite budget to build the next generation of a tool. So there's this competitive play happening in the market where you know, vendor A might be leapfrogging ahead of vendor B, and then next year vendor B leapfrogs ahead of vendor A. And it's this constant sort of arms race. And from a capitalist perspective, it's great in the sense of new innovation, new technologies, um, you know, rapid advancement. The downside of that is because things are rushed so much, that's where we end up with mistakes in software applications, technology, architecture. And hence, you end up with all these security patches that are required or bug features, fixes and patches. So that's kind of this kind of natural arms race, if you like, between the vendor community. And then throw into that mix the challenge where a salesperson comes to the product team and says, hey, in order for me to get this you know, multi-million dollar deal, you need to have this feature added to the product because they won't buy until that feature's there. Sure. And so suddenly the product team is thrown into disarray because they now have to put this long-term roadmap strategy on ice, build in that new feature in order to sell that product for that quarter, and then try and go back to the roadmap. And then at the same time, there's that third leg, which is now fixing all the bugs that have been sort of introduced into the products or you know, because there hasn't been time to properly test something that it performs in a way that hasn't really been expected and needs to be corrected. So you've got that, you know, how do they spend the limited funds in terms of new features to stay ahead, to gain new customers, to create a stable product, and to also remediate bugs that have been introduced. And that that is really a dilemma for a lot of vendors. And it's easy for CISOs to sort of sit there and say, well, people should develop good products and and only release them to the market when when they're all stable. But that's not the reality of the world. And those CISOs themselves would be demanding, hey, I need this product by XYZ in order to meet a business objective. So I think there's a, another leg. You mentioned three. I think the fourth could be something you quoted earlier, which is the CISO pressure uh, to deliver and, and their typical tenure. Yep. So imagine trying to sell to a CISO who may only be there for a year or 18 months and has their own idea uh, about a feature that they may need or a goal that they have. And so you're the salesperson and and you know this. And so there's even greater sort of incentive or a rush to get it done. 100%. It is. It is a perfect summary. And I've, I've seen, you know, crazy things where, you know, a government department, for example, the... CISO in the government department needed to meet a particular objective, which was to buy, um, you know, some IPS devices and have them for the, that sort of agency. And basically, they bought the kit and just left it sitting in a room, not even installed. Ticked the box, met the requirement, moved on to the next thing. So, why does that not attempting to out anyone? But surely no one wrote a, a control uh, or had a finding that, that just says you have to buy it and not install it or not tune it <laughs> or not have it reviewed. But you, you say that you've seen this. So that means someone did. 
Yep. How in the hell did we end up in a spot where where that happens? Where we have literally shelfware, uh, and if it's you know probably hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions of dollars, what? what why? Why do we have that? We, we have that problem, I think, because the key performance indicators and the incentives on those individuals are at a mismatch with the organization. And so they're being forced to meet sort of bizarre requirements and, you know, that haven't really been thought through. So, you know, that they can get away with basically buying the thing, leaving it in a room, ticking a box saying, yep, we have IPS devices. There's been nothing about it being installed, meeting a business objective, reducing operational cost, or adding a value to the business. And I think that's a bit that's missing. It's, you know, people get too controls focused on do you have this control tick? Um, you know, if you look at PCI DSS, you can meet all the PCI DSS requirements and still be breached. So it's not about having things to tick, it's about other things that you're doing adding value to the organization and that could be adding value in different ways it could be reducing operational overheads it could be speeding up the process it could be through automation it could be through a whole series of of different activities that actually add a business value outcome as opposed to ticking a compliance box um, you know i've seen crazy things where you know, really complex firewalls have been installed. You know, you're talking hundreds of virtual devices and implemented in a way that was, you know, hugely sophisticated. And then at the end of the day, uh, having an allow any, any rule as the last rule, which was absolutely sort of, you know, ridiculous. And no one willing to change that rule because that rule had been put in so long ago that no one's willing to do the hard yards to work out what needs to be remediated and understanding the business logic to then say, okay, we're going to remove this, allow any any rule at the end of the firewall, which, which shouldn't be there, but there's going to be some business disruption. So we need to understand you know, who's going to be impacted, how they're going to be impacted, work with those stakeholders, and then actually go through cleaning up and remediation. And I think that's sort of another problem that we often see is it's very easy to embark on a project because a project can be exciting, it can be sexy, it can have a lot of attention from senior executive, uh, there could be a lot of money involved in a particular project, and then as the project drags on, you get this project fatigue and then it's just abandoned. And so then you have these half-baked installations, uh, half-baked migrations, and people have just really increased the surface area that they now need to protect for the next person that comes in. That's quite common. Uh, how do I say this diplomatically? There's an organization that I'm aware of that started a innovation center, which is phenomenal. I think it's in spirit is important and is something that, uh, if pursued properly, is is should be at the core of every organization. Right? There needs to be in people that can operate without fear and can sit and think about what's the next thing or maybe three steps or 10 steps or 100 steps ahead. However, at the same time, and this is sort of my, my joke that would probably get me in trouble or certainly would have if, if it was a widely known joke at the time, is that many organizations more importantly need a remediation yep. center. 
they need a group of people that sort of drive the trash truck around to clean up uh, these any any rules and these um, land of forgotten projects. And often that stuff doesn't get any credit. And double down, it comes with great risk because you can, an outage is often worse than a breach in terms of missing your bonus or uh, some other larger issue. So how did we end up with that? I mean, it, assuming you agree with my remediation center. Uh, yeah, state, I think that'd be great. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, how did we end up to the point where it's like, that's because there are people and you know them and I know them that thrive on, on cleanup, on making things right, on finishing the job. And, but I don't know that we champion that enough as leaders. We don't. And, and I think, you know, it even goes down to the board of a of a company as well, really having focus on when we implement a project, have we implemented that project completely? And even thinking about before you embark on a project, what happens if we run out of funding partway? Hmm. What happens if this drags on for too long and we get project fatigue? Have we just made the problem exponentially worse because now we've got data distributed in multiple locations, we've got multiple systems, we've got these legacy items that we still need to keep in maintenance and uh, somebody looking after it. And it's really, you know, people haven't thought about if I just went through and cleaned up the environment and removed a lot of the legacy stuff, which is just sitting around because the project was sort of half-baked, if I finish that project properly and remove that sort of legacy component, what are the cost savings to the business? You know, and that could be cost savings in terms of maintenance costs, licensing costs, um, network usage and utilization. It could be resources needed to maintain them. And then, you know, think about the the non-dollar value in terms of you're now reducing your vulnerability or your your sort of attack surface area because you now no longer need to pay attention to those systems that were sitting on the side because you don't have them anymore. You know, this whole um, COVID sort of 19 pandemic thing, I think is going to highlight the fragility of a lot of organizations and their lack of building resilient systems and processes in place. You know, I know some organizations that have offshored and outsourced to places like India and the Philippines. And, you know, those call centers now can no longer provide the services. And so those businesses in Australia now need to make the decision do I take the risk of now letting that organization in the Philippines or India out of their controlled environment to take their work home, you know, so the staff right. take the work home right. uh, out, of, out of the typical, you know, nice, shiny, controlled environment into sort of chaos home environment in, in countries like India and the Philippines? So for those that don't know, at least it's this way in the States, uh, but let me, let me see if, it's, if we're on the same path. Typically, from a control perspective, uh, from an audit perspective, from a regulatory perspective, we say, okay, we're going to have some element of work happen offshore, but we allow it to happen offshore because it's contained in this building. It is contained on this network. There's no, you're not taking your work home. And at the point that we have, and this is an amazing point and actually one that I haven't covered yet, that now this offshore basically just goes to zero. You can't do it because for their health, they're not allowed in this in this 
facility, which Correct. you and I have both been in them. They're massive. They're like, I mean, it's like a warehouse, you know, of folks sitting in there. So not the conditions you need during a pandemic. So now what do you do? Right. And now how do you then pay the cost? You got, you may have to bring it home at a 40% increase, not to mention your project costs to wrap this back in. Right. So that I think is, so when you talk about something being, being frail, I wanted to double down on that just for those listening that might not be aware that might not have ever gone through the outsourcing bit. Was that where you were going with that? Yep. hundred percent. Because you've got two options as a business. You either bring that back onshore and then, you know, you've got that uplift cost or do they reduce and relax what normally would have been an outrageous thought, which is, yeah, we're going to let those people now take that information home and work from it at home. And in some of those countries, it's very different to a Western sort of environment where, you know, it might be mum, dad, and a couple kids. Uh, you've got multiple generation family members living on top of each other in a small confined area. And in some instances, you've got uh, maybe a couple of people that are sharing in a couple of different families that are sharing the same accommodation. And now you've got technically controlled information on a laptop or a device being used within that very crowded, dense living area. To complicate it even further, you might have two competing companies because a lot of these offshores and, and outsourcing sort of organizations, they might be servicing one bank, for example, servicing another bank or one insurer and another insurer. And suddenly now you've got individuals who might have worked for each of those separate entities, but within that one big warehouse that was segregated right. internally, now working in the same house. And, you know, so there's going to be this kind of risk transfer component of, you know, will identity theft increase as a result of COVID-19 just from offshoring and outsourcing facilities needing to reduce the controls that they once had in place? Yeah. These controls are no longer valid. There's no more, you know, many of these locations, you can't go in with a self. It's effectively a skiff. Yep. Uh, and, and you're not allowed to bring outside devices. You don't, there, there's a an actual physical human firewall between these. So unless they could memorize your information, they're not getting anything. They're not printing anything. They're not, no one's seeing their machine. That's extremely valid. And I wonder what wins because ultimately it's, it's either the dollar. Uh, either we say, okay, you know what? Profitability matters first, or is it, is it privacy or security? Like where, where does this weigh against? And then the other twist on this, this could be a completely separate show, Damien. We weren't even planning on talking about it. Now, it, it generally will fall back on the CISO to sort of assess and then maybe even, I hope not, but sign off on. If you're a CISO listening, don't sign yeah. off on this. It's someone else. But you might have to. Don't force yourself into getting you know, a bad career decision in this. You know, One of the other things I was really impressed with, Damien, when we spoke is your ability to understand you know, most people would, would measure a good CISO on if they're able to articulate how their company generates revenue, you know, earnings and business units and these sorts of fundamental. You, I think, distinguish yourself as a leader beyond that in at a national level in terms of what is Australia's GDP? What is your organization? What 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 role does your your job play in that and how does the current COVID situation affect the GDP of your country, which I don't know that everyone has. So 
maybe talk a little bit about that on what are organizations facing uh, like yours and, and maybe share from a business lens what you're anticipating. You got into it a little bit, but, but break into that a little bit more if you would. If you look at the education sector, so Australia has really sort of three major exports uh, to the rest of the world. So you're looking at iron ore as a major exporter and supplier to the world, uh, coal from an energy perspective. And then there was another one, which is education. So education as a service to the rest of the world is worth to Australia about $40 billion a year. That equates to roughly about 250,000 people in the country being employed just from one sector. And then if you take into consideration, you know, Australia under the whole COVID-19 has a travel ban where, uh, you know, anybody that comes from overseas, we've got dramatically reduced flights coming to Australia. Anybody that does come back to Australia tends to be sort of repatriated Australian citizens. They have to go into mandatory quarantine for 14 days. Uh, that means we can no longer get international students to the university or higher education sector, that's got a phenomenal long-term impact. If you think about it from a country perspective, you know, you're losing, iron ore is going to be reduced in terms of export because as the world naturally grinds to a little bit of a halt and slows down, there's less consumption and there's less need for iron. Similarly, there's less need for coal for power generation. But then there's also this whole education sector component for international students that were flocking to Australia. And they're flocking to Australia for a couple of reasons. One was the value add of learning Western culture and getting immersed in Western culture. It also provided a mechanism for them to look at getting permanent residence and then ultimately citizenship down the track. People would come and do education in Australia for different reasons. It's either, you know, a immigration pathway. It's either a learning a different culture, so that way they can adapt and innovate and build new businesses within their own countries that could then interact with sort of Western society as well. With that sort of ground to a halt, the university sectors stand to lose billions of dollars. Um, you know, I've heard of some universities over the next. 12 to, to 18 months are going to be losing, you know, half, you know, $500 million, so half, half a billion, just at one organization. Some of the universities here, you know, had 50 to 70% reliance on international students. That's a shock. It's going to be a shock to, to education. What is the response? So is there a way to bend but not break? Uh, with this, obviously, you're not going to get the immersion if you're not there. But um, you know, this is a new leadership challenge that goes beyond information security, but specific to your role in the development of programs and the thought leadership, and also the, the sort of the, the protection of, of of that brand. What what ideas do you have if you could get up and speak? to others in your position, what would you recommend that they do in this trying time? You've got to look at it from a, a value prop perspective for those international students. So, you know, we, we've obviously got the ability to spin up very quickly purely online courses, but then those online courses will help 
students who are already actively engaged. So say, for example, you might have an international student who went back home and now cannot get back into the country in Australia to complete their education. They could complete it online and maybe they're doing their last year or the last six months sort of online. That's not so bad. It's more the ones where if you think long term, you know, they're looking at it from an immersive experience. They're looking at it from a pathway to leave their country and sort of move to Australia and then from Australia, potentially other parts of the world. That really is heavily dependent on them being able to physically be in Australia. So, you know, it's one of the things we need to look at. Do we develop a mechanism where people can still come in and are in mandatory quarantine for a period of 14 days uh, after they've undergone testing and then they're released sort of into the community? Uh, we, We have that in place for Australians returning and for any international visitors that come. But who's going to foot the bill? for doing that because that can be quite expensive. And that maybe is something that, you know, the Australian government needs to consider when you're talking about $40 billion of export services and then all the ancillary jobs that are around um, that education sector as well. When you think about accommodation, housing, uh, resources that those foreign students are using and consuming, uh, they're also providing a mechanism for low-paid sort of low-skilled roles as well, because often when you come as a student, you can only do a maximum of 20 hours paid work. And so, you know, some of them will be working at gas stations, restaurants, and things like that. And that's kind of that hidden side that you don't see, that a lot of businesses are also dependent on sort of that student base to to run their business as well. I haven't had to think about this nearly as, as long or as well as you, but it would seem like that the the university system that figures this onboarding, this sort of COVID um, response onboarding is going to win out of this to say, look, um, we're in trying times, but this is part of your educational experience you know, in, in this world. Uh, so it's two weeks isolation. But in that two weeks, you've probably taken some immersive classes. I have. We call them summer session here where it's a condensed, you go every day. And at the end of it, you'll earn a certain number of credits. Yeah, you're going to be alone, or uh, but uh, you're going to knock out a class. And there's security implications to that too, both on the, you know, both the human and the cyber, right? Say, so, okay, how do we develop curricula and networks and, and, and all the, the rest of the delivery required? I had never thought about that. I mean, do you think that's something that we'll see? I think it's going to be because realistically, you know, one of the other unusual things is I've got a genetic engineering background and a biology and chemistry background, which is kind of odd for a cybersecurity person. I really don't see us having a vaccine for this anytime soon. One of the things that kind of concerns me is we've put a lot of faith in everything getting back to normal once we have a vaccine. You know, if you assume that a vaccine, if we can even create one, because we've never created one for a coronavirus like this before, you know, they were trying to work on one for SARS and they still hadn't gotten it to a point where it would work. So, you know, assuming that we could theoretically develop one within the next 12 months, you've then got the logistical nightmare of how do you distribute it across the globe to everybody? You know, that's, you know, seven plus billion people. To right. receive a vaccine, and not to mention the ramp-up time to, for production. There's, you know, only a certain amount that you can produce in any one given time, and then you're going to get the inevitable. You're going to get some deaths. 
some things are going to happen, and then you're going to get misinformation, and you're going to get this whole information influence campaign that'll be sparked by some interest group or some government somewhere or some crime syndicate, which will then spark a whole anti-vax component. So I don't think a vaccine is the simple solution that everybody's kind of been believing that oh, once we have a vaccine, everything will get back to normal. You know, there will be mistakes, there will be accidents, some people will have a negative reaction, you know, just with any medication that we currently sure. have. And that unfortunately will be exploited. And that comes back to that whole, you know, cybersecurity element around how do you trust information and where do people get reliable information sources from? Because I can see we're going to get to a point where, you know, a vaccine, if it is produced, you're going to get one group that'll say, okay, we need to be vaccinated in order to go out and, um, you know, continue life as normal. But then you're going to have this anti-vax group that sure. is going to be pushing their own agenda and their own information. And if you think about it, from a foreign government perspective, if you really wanted to cause strife and disrupt a country for political reasons or economic reasons, you know, they would be pushing very hard for an information influence campaign that would cause confusion amongst the population. You know, Russia's very good at doing it. They did it with, if you look at sort of Ukraine before uh, Crimea was annexed, create an information disruption campaign that causes population to have an uprising or a dispute, and then you roll in the tanks to say we're the peacekeeping force to bring order and stability. You know, I, I've often wondered, you know, we have people today that, uh, for their own reasons, do not want vaccinations, right? They don't want for, for simple things, let alone something tied to this pandemic. Uh, I wonder how much nonsense there will be. And maybe there'll be, you know, sheds of truth. You mentioned that there's always sort of the sort of collateral damage that occurs in the development of these kinds of things. There's adverse reactions to anything. I wonder how much of that we'll have to sort of sort through. And in that process, how much of that charged message will be used as a delivery mechanism, even on the cyber front. So there's the sort of the, what do you believe is truth? And then there's, and how do you believe it is truth? But then in, in, intermingled in that, is that now a vector, that charged topic as a vector uh, to infect machines, to create, you know, bots that are a part of, you know, larger activities, that kind of thing. So there's sort of multi-tiers of this from a leadership perspective. It gets dark pretty quickly. It does. And, and you know, even if you extrapolate it to an organization, so if you're in charge of physical security for your organization, do you mandate that everybody needs to be vaccinated in your organization in order to protect your customers and also right. other employees? Uh, you know, how do you make that decision and that call? And then deal with the consequence because there, there will inevitably be somebody that will have a negative reaction to a vaccine. Yeah, as small as that percentage is, that often gets blown out into a larger sort of proportion that, you know, one in 10,000 or one in a million died from a particular vaccine. Suddenly that becomes a whole narrative that kind of distorts the information. Sure. Birth issues, right? There's all sorts of other sort of trickle down yeah, and your 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 point about physical security, you know, now or international travel. Yes. Yep. Right? What what's required? You know, I've been to Australia several times and and have visited your facilities. They're fantastic, uh, immensely impressed. But there may be a time where I have to show my papers, right? So what is that? It accompanies with 
with my um, normal travel documents. And if I don't have them, now what? Like Australia's um, producing what's called a COVID safe app. And uh, the app's been rolled out and it's up to the public in Australia to determine whether they want to install the app. So it's currently voluntary at the moment. They haven't released the source code for the app yet, but they're promising to do that. The app uses Bluetooth to determine uh, whether you've been next to somebody else uh, who's also become COVID-19 positive tested. And then they'll use that app to do contact tracing or to help speed up contact tracing. In the future, if you think about the privacy components, you know, that there's some short-term thinking about opening up travel between Australia and New Zealand because we're kind of two isolated bubbles, if you like. I guess the, the advantage of being two island uh, nations. Will Australians and New Zealanders be happy for both countries to use exactly the same app and for both right. governments to share that data between the two citizens, a group of citizens? And then if we want to then include a third country, you've got to think about, okay, now are you happy to let your personal data and the information of who you've been in contact with also go to another government? And then that kind of expands and expands again. Will we reach a scenario where you've got to show a certificate, like an immunity certificate, to go to certain places or attend certain events or have certain freedoms that we used to have? Um, it's going to be very interesting times ahead. I mean, it's 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 highlighted if you've seen the film Contagion. Yes, yep. Uh, and they have their bracelet with a little barcode and hologram on it. I mean, it's it's the exact same thing. And then what's the ramification? How do you tie that data in maybe back to your physical security? Correct. Yep. And, and what are the implications from a privacy perspective? Because uh, <laughs> people have been quite happy to say, look, for the safety of everybody, I'll give up all my privacy. Uh, at what point does that get rolled back? Um, and does that set a precedence now where for any crisis, whether it's a terrorist attack, whether it's a pandemic or something else, that the government can say, okay, um, we've got access to all your data again? Damien, I have one final question for you, and we, we close our show on it every time. We've covered a lot today, but maybe there's a, another gem that you have for us. What does being a new uh, CISO mean to you, Damien? So it's about really building a positive culture, changing behavior, and paying things forward. Because at the end of the day, once we move on into something else in our life and as we get older, we need to help build the next generation and the next generation need to be better than us. I completely agree. Damien, I'm always impressed with you. Uh, thank you so much for making time for us today on the show. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast and remember to rate, review and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.